millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Before we begin, just a quick warning. This episode contains descriptions of violence and strong language. terror group that aspired to be an empire is now making its final stand in Syria. Baghouz, illuminated by fire to the drumbeat of gunshots and heavy artillery, on what U.S.-backed forces hope will be the last night for the Islamic State's self-declared caliphate. The Battle of Baghouz was Islamic State's last stand. Baghouz's town on the mid-Euphrates Valley in Syria where thousands and thousands of Islamic State fighters and their families were gathered. It was the last territorial strip of the caliphate, and it was about to get subsumed in battle. In February 2019, two years after the Battle of Mosul ended, Anthony Lloyd was on the front line watching the Islamic State collapse. So Baghouz itself is this kind of low valley, starts off with a scatter of buildings which become more concentrated as they near the riverbank. It was an incredible scene at the time. In amongst the buildings would be these fighters, Kalashnikov and RPG clashes. No Man's Land was a couple of hundred metres. You could scurry up on the rooftops and you would see just the other side of No Man's Land, Islamic State couriers whizzing around on motorcycles. And every now and then, a coalition drone strike would whiz down amongst them. There'd be this weird, this weird sound drone strike. Sometimes you hear a kind of little crack sound in the sky above you. Then you hear this and then uh, a drone going in amongst the ISIS positions. With that last stand, there were a lot of obvious questions there. Like, if any Western hostages are still left alive, if John Cantley had survived Mosul, this is where his fate would possibly be discovered. But at the time... Anthony didn't really think that was possible. Not after the carnage of the Battle of Mosul. But as he was reporting from the front line, embedded with a Syrian defence force, the SDF, as they launched their final assault on ISIS, it was John Cantley who once again became the story. I was chatting with an SDF commander, a Kurdish guy from Afrin, as I was talking to him, someone came and tapped me on the shoulder, occurred and said, hey, a British minister has just said 
that the hostage John Cantley may still be alive. So I turned immediately to him and said, hey, what do you mean? He said, Ben Wallace, who was then the security minister, had made a comment that John Cantley may still be alive. Or more than that, that the British authorities believed he was still alive. So I turned straight to this Kurdish commander and said, have you heard this? And he was kind of aware of it. He said, you should ask British Special Forces more about this. There is some talk that Islamic State may have John Cantley alive in Baghouz and be trying to trade him for the safe passage of Islamic State commanders. In the final moments of the Caliphate, Islamic State's last stand, there's suddenly a glimmer of hope for John Cantley. Could he have survived? In this episode, we hope to bring you some answers. But first, a reminder. Last time on Last Man Standing. John Cantley appeared in Mosul in a video that raised even more questions back in London. Had he turned? The guy's a prisoner. To be a chameleon that survives, you have to change colour. But Mosul was soon being bombarded by coalition strikes as war arrived in the city. In Mosul, the word missing describes the fate of thousands. John Cantley went missing in Mosul. The Americans say they lost all trace of John Cantley after he was last seen in the Al-Salam hospital in December 2016. Two years later, in the heat of another battle for the last vestiges of the Islamic State, could John Cantley still be alive? I'm Manveen Rana, and I'm joining the veteran war correspondent for The Times, Anthony Lloyd, for this special series on his long-running investigation to find out what happened to John Cantley. This is Last Man Standing from The Times and The Sunday Times, Episode 8, Restless Ghosts. government says it believes high-profile ISIS hostage John Cantley is still alive. The photojournalist from Hampshire was last seen alive in an IS propaganda video in 2016. But now, the security minister Ben Wallace has told a meeting of foreign journalists that the British government believes Mr Cantley is still alive. Last month, the head spokesman for the Kurdish-led forces tweeted that there were reports that Cantley had survived the battle for Mosul and was seen moving around. This was a huge sudden moment. Everybody, you know, everybody wanted John Cantley to be alive. And yet, hearing the news in the middle of the Battle of Bargouz, Anthony was incredulous. I was amazed because I thought the chances of John being able to escape from Mosul two years earlier when that city was under the level of assault that it was were absolutely minimal. 
And the local commanders you're with from the Kurdish forces, when they hear that a British minister said this, what is their reaction? Do they think there's any truth in it? Cynical and ambivalent. I met some Kurdish commanders who say, hey, don't take it too seriously. Islamic State, try this ploy with our prisoners every time we have them surrounded. They say, hey, we've got your prisoners, well, let them go if you let us go. It's a ploy. Don't necessarily fall for it. However, I met another pretty senior SDF commander who was aware of the presence of at least one photograph of John Cantley being shown by Islamic State as apparent proof of life that he was still alive. This particular Kurdish commander was sure in his mind that John Cantley had actually turned and become Islamic State. He spoke of John very disparagingly. He said John had been seen according to this photograph in a little town outside Baguiz called Hajin, and he said John was Dash. He thought he was now fully ISIS. He thought he was fully ISIS. Here's the thing, though. Such photographs did exist. There were at least two photographs of John being circulated by Islamic State at the time. Just tell us about these photographs. Did you see them? I've seen at least one photograph purportedly of John Cantley. In this photograph, it was shot from inside a car, It's quite blurry. There are three guys who are undoubtedly Islamic State fighters. You can tell by their long hair and their combats. There is a fourth man, which may or may not be John Cantley. He's got his back, slightly turned three quarters, but basically he's got his back to the camera. Has John Cantley's height, has John Cantley's black hair, and much shorter black hair than Islamic State fighters had, was wearing the same black kind of three-quarter length combat trousers, which John often wore in Mosul. May or may not be John Cantley. Can't tell. Can't tell. There was another photograph, apparently, where you could tell, but that photograph wasn't from Syria and Baguz. It was from way, way earlier, years earlier. And these photos were now being circulated by ISIS in the hope of cutting a deal. Yeah, you've got Islamic State saying, hey, we've got John Cantley and he's alive because they want to cut a deal. Then you've got a couple of photos going around which are later sourced to be far older than actually contemporary. It's possible that those photographs fed slightly into Ben Wallace's logic. But that's very different from announcing that he's alive. Yeah, it wasn't a smart move. And it it resulted, at one point, a squadron of the SAS was stood by for any potential rescue raid to rescue John. But no raid was carried out. Instead, a hurried statement from the Home Office urged the media to show sensitivity in repeating the claim. Which was bizarre, as it was a claim the security minister, Ben Wallace, had made in a briefing to journalists. A Home Office spokesman said, speculation is unhelpful. While in Whitehall, Ben Wallace's claims caused such anger that sources briefed the Daily Telegraph saying, we genuinely don't know if John Cantley is dead or alive. But if he is alive, then it's genuinely irresponsible for Ben Wallace to make the comments he has, because this could put his life in jeopardy. This could prompt his captors to move him, or even worse. It's a massive own goal by Ben Wallace. The threat on Mr Cantley's life has increased exponentially. We asked Ben Wallace if he could explain what had prompted those comments, but his office declined the request, saying the Defence Secretary cannot comment on security matters. But in 2019, his words 
had affected many people. John Cantley's family were very taken back by these comments. And what it seems was that Ben Wallace meant to have said, in the absence of a body, the British authorities would not necessarily regard a hostage as certainly having been killed. What he actually said, and he shouldn't have said it, was British authorities believe John Cantley's alive, which is something very different. Mm. And he had misspoken and was heavily criticised. The search for John Cantley had once more hit a dead end. But as the Islamic State was being slowly dismantled, many of its secrets were tumbling out. A year before the Battle of Baguz, that included the whereabouts of the Beatles, the brutal gang of British ISIS fighters who tortured and terrorised the hostages. But they'd also chosen to save John Cantley. So, the nickname The Beatles was given to the British members of this Islamic State cell, actually by John. It was also a name that allowed the hostages to talk about their British guards in a way that wouldn't necessarily alert other guards to who they were talking about. The most prominent member of the Beatles, Mohammed M. Wazi, given the alias Jihadi John by the British press, he was killed by a drone strike in Raqqa in 2015. Breaking news as we come on the air tonight. The terrorist known as Jihadi John targeted in a U.S. armed drone strike earlier today. The knife-wielding masked man became a symbol of ISIS after authorities believe he beheaded a number of hostages. British citizen Mohammed M. Wazi was seen in those gruesome videos beheading U.S. journalists Stephen Sotloff and James Foley. One official telling ABC News it was a 100% direct hit and that M. Wazi was basically evaporated. Then there's the fourth supposed member of the Beatles gang, Ain Davis, who flew back to Britain this week after completing a seven-and-a-half-year prison sentence in Turkey. He was arrested at Luton Airport, charged with terror offences for events in 2014. Now, Ain Davis has always denied being a member of the Beatles, and his exact role is unclear. But one thing's clear, he knew the other Beatles members, both from West London and from Syria. The two other prominent members, Alexander Cote and El Shafi El Sheikh, have been captured in early 2018 by the Syrian Kurdish forces and they've been imprisoned. They've since been extradited to the States, their British citizenship stripped from them, and Alexander Cote has been sentenced to life imprisonment. El Shafi El Sheikh has been found guilty of eight terrorism charges, mainly related to the abuse of hostages, and he will be sentenced this year in September. But many people will ask, well, surely the Beatles know what happened to John Candy because they'd been so intimately involved with John and James, both in holding them from their early stages, torturing them, and then becoming engrossed in John's talents and the possibility that he might have another role. So at this stage, do they have anything to do with John? Do they know where John is? The Beatles had lost influence in John Cantley's fate. By 2015, John is staying in and around Mosul. The Beatles stay in Syria. Their direct contact with John Cantley has broken. They do not have any influence on his fate. And it's very, very 
unlikely that they would have known what actually happened to John. Now, I met them both. I met Cote and El Sheikh. How did that happen? A couple of months after they'd been captured, I was in northern Syria and requested to see them. I was taken to a detention facility at the edge of the city of Kobani to see the two surviving Beatles. And I remember it very well. There were a couple of really strange things about it. I met a lot of bad people in my time. And usually I shake hands with them. It doesn't matter what they've done. Mm. Shaking hands is not the symbol of that I agree with them or certainly that I like them or, or respect them. It's none of that. Shaking hands is the symbolism of acknowledging the space to communicate. That's all it is. But it seemed that I did have a problem with it when I went in the room to see the Beatles. Yeah. I thought, I really hope I don't have to shake hands with these guys. These guys have tortured friends of mine. They've tortured James Foley. And they've been involved in James's murder. I don't want to shake their hands. But at the same time, you know, I've got to be true to the professionalism of the moment. And so I'm relieved. I go into this room. It's quite a bare room. There's a sofa against the wall. Both guys are sitting there on the sofa. And they're handcuffed and masked, blindfolded. And there's a chair on the other side of the room, which is for me, and a low table. And a guard in the room beckons to me to take that seat before he removes the masks from the Beatles. So the moment of shaking hands has gone. I don't actually have to confront it. Then I begin speaking to them, obviously. They're London men. And for a time, Alexander Cote and I had lived in the same street, Goulburn Road. So first of all, I'm aware... I'm not going to break these guys in any interview. One of the hostages, Didier Francois, had told me when he knew I was going to see them, he'd kick them both in the balls for me and tell them to fuck themselves. But I didn't because that's not what I'm there to do. No. I'm there to try and draw information from them. And particularly, I want to know what they know of what happened to John Canley. Mm. However, the other thing is, these guys are basically devoted Islamic State ideologues. They're terrorists. They're going to have had at least some resistance to interrogation training. Now, that's to interrogation. I'm not an interrogator. I'm a journalist. I'm interviewing them. So there's no point me going head-to-head -head in an interview because they're just going to laugh. They don't even have to speak to me. It's not compulsory. So instead, I have to come at it from an angle, and that angle is the Goulburn Road, Westbourne Grove, Portobello, Labrick Grove. It's, you know, George's Fish Bar. It's Lisboa. It's all these haunts that we all know. So we start talking about that. They were a common hinterland. It's a common hinterland. And also it's very unnerving speaking to them because they're each two people. Occasionally you get full-on Islamic State vernacular and they've kind of surging anger, particularly from El Shafi, El Sheikh, very angry guy. But then they can do... You know, the London chat, the London banter mm. as well. It's really, it's strange. It's quite disconcerting. Very disconcerting. However, in, in order to get to them, if I started asking them and I did directly, hey, what happened to John? They would say, we don't feel comfortable answering those kind of questions without a legal brief present. However, if I went the other way, they've both been interrogated by Americans by this stage yeah. in Syria. So if I went the route of what did your American interrogators ask you about John? 
that was a kind of through the mirror way of asking them what they thought had happened to John. And they'd answer. They would answer. They would answer. They said, well, the Americans were very keen to know when we had last seen John or we hadn't seen John for a long time before the Battle of Mosul. And the Americans were very keen to ask if we had met anybody from Mosul who might know where John had been killed in Mosul. Now, they might have been lying. I mean, these guys are terrorists. Yeah. But they seemed clear on the fact that the Americans who had questioned them were trying to pin down information about what the Americans thought had been John Cantley's death in Mosul. Wow. And when I questioned the Beatles, they seemed certain that John had died. Was Mosul where John Cantley's story came to an end? Anthony has been back to the Iraqi city that was once at the heart of the Islamic State to find out. We'll be back in just a moment. But if you're interested in this podcast, you might also want to try Stories of Our Times, the daily news podcast that brings together the best journalism from the Times and the Sunday Times. One story told in depth every day. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The end of the Islamic State brought forth a rush of potential answers to the mystery of John Cantley's fate. The rumours that he was still alive in the Battle of Bagus came to nothing, and the Beatles thought John had died, but they weren't actually with him. But there was another line of inquiry. We know that John Cantley was last seen at the Salam Hospital in Mosul 
as it was being bombarded. Another Iraqi soldier bites the dust, and this is exactly what's waiting for all the Iraqi soldiers here in Mosul. The last stage of the fighting in Mosul, I mean, it was beyond your imaginations of fighting. The place was just transformed into a sea of rubble. I remember the heat from helicopter rockets just kind of bouncing down with the shockwaves down these narrow alleys and bodies everywhere. It was a really dark and violent end to Islamic State in that city. It's very, very unlikely that anybody would have escaped that. Anthony has spoken to people in the American FBI-led unit who were tasked with tracking Western hostages, and they say they lost all trace of John after this battle. But when Mosul fell, there were people who'd been inside the city with John who managed to creep out of the rubble. When the Battle of Mosul closed in 2017... In the final month, really heavy month of fighting, June to July, you've got a number of Islamic State prisoners captured by the Iraqis who give pretty detailed accounts of John having died near the Al Salam hospital shortly after that final video was taken. Wow. Yeah. What do we know about these prisoners? So the first accounts by these prisoners came out in an Iraqi news agency called Al Sura, who had interviewed three Islamic State prisoners in July 2017, who had said John Cantley had been killed in Mosul. Now I tracked down the journalist who had written those stories. He told me the names of the three prisoners who had given those accounts. And checking them out, two were not quite hearsay, but the prisoners had heard that John had been killed from other people. But there was one guy, one particular prisoner, who was a member of Islamic State's media wing in Mosul. He was a person of real interest to me. Anthony spent months tracking this man. He used contacts in Iraqi intelligence to pin down details about his past, the names of his parents, where he'd been born a long list of facts that would help to identify exactly the right prisoner. But he soon hit another dead end. Unfortunately, in trying to find him in the really complex and opaque Iraqi judicial records, it seemed that somehow, between being captured in Mosul in July 2017, being interviewed by the Iraqi journalist, and then being transferred from one prison to another... Somehow, the record suddenly announced that he was dead. Do you think he is? It's really difficult to say. Not only are the records really complicated, and the central data bank is itself contradictory mm. when you're looking at the fate of prisoners, but you find some ISIS prisoners end up shunted through death row and hung very quickly, even for quite minor offences. Right. Others disappear into the bowels of prisons that you never get access to. Others even fairly senior guys who get sentenced to lengthy spells in prison and then suddenly appear on the run again or get out to Turkey oh, wow. because someone's paid a lot of money for them to get out of prison. So when you chase someone through the judicial records to find out their fate and you suddenly find, oh, they're dead, then you're not sure. Could are they mean anything. Are they really dead? Are they somewhere else in a prison? Are they out of prison? So I'm not saying that I've stopped looking for prisoner number three. Mosul is a city of restless ghosts. Thousands went missing under ISIS, 
and many more were killed during the battle to defeat them. Even without the testimony of prisoner number three, there are other signs that the answers to John's fate lie among the missing. In December last year, an olive tree was planted in the Al Nuri Mosque in the old city in Mosul at the request of John Cantley's family in memory of John Cantley near the place he was last seen. We asked John Cantley's family if they wanted to be part of this podcast, but they chose not to. But this tree and its location do seem to be a symbolic acknowledgement of John's fate. The Al Nuri Mosque is an absolute integral part both of Mosul's religious identity, of its historical identity, and indeed of the city's place in recent history. It was at the Al Nuri Mosque that Abu Bakr al Baghdadi, the leader of Islamic State, launched the caliphate in June 2014 after his fighters captured the city. The mosque was then blown up and its famous minaret toppled in the summer of 2017. As ISIS were being defeated, they blew up the mosque rather than allow it to fall into the hands of Iraqi security forces. And I remember it at that time as a place of ruin. This year, I went back again. It's now being heavily rebuilt. There's sort of tapping of stonemasons, the soaring of carpenters, rebuilding not only the prayer hall, but the minaret. And in the central courtyard, there's one structure which has by and large survived the blast of the ISIS bombs. And it's this L-shaped garden. And there's a few olive trees in it, some much older olive trees, but then three olive saplings. One of them is dedicated to John Cantley. And I was actually taken there by the guy who had dug that sapling in in December last year. This tree is planted in this area in Mosul inside Al Nuri Mosque and the type of the tree, an olive tree is a memory for the soul of the missing It disappeared inside Mosul based on what we know We wanted to do something in his memory to remember him based on what his family asked us which was a tree what he said is he's very proud of planting the tree. However, then he started telling me, look, there's been all this controversy about it. When news of that tree being planted was released on social media in Mosul, it was met by a torrent of criticism. People saying, listen, why has a tree to John Cantley been planted in so spiritual and important a place to us as the Al Nuri Mosque. John Cantley came to our city with Islamic State. His messages served Islamic State. We don't know whether he actually had become Islamic State. It was put to me very well by one man. We don't know whether that tree commemorates a man with the soul of Daesh or a man with the soul of a hostage. So when word went out this tree had been planted in John's memory, there was really heated contention. People saying, remove that tree, maybe he's dashed. People turned up at the Al Nuri Mosque demanding that the tree be taken away. Oh, wow. Yeah. So even in that memorial, there's controversy. Now, I spoke then to many Iraqis about their feelings on John Cantley 
or mm. why they might have been angered by this tree. And despite all of what they'd been through in Mosul, they nevertheless managed to articulate to me, it's not necessarily that we couldn't be convinced that John wasn't a hostage, but we just don't know that story. All we know of John Cantley was that he came to our city with Daesh, with Islamic State, and he worked alongside terrorists at a time of our suffering. If a tree in his memory is to be planted in the Al Nuri Mosque, then we require more answers to John Cantley. We need to know John Cantley's story. We'll attempt to bring you some answers in just a moment. But first, a quick reminder. This investigation, our attempt to bring you John Cantley's story, has taken months of painstaking work. And it's just one of many investigations conducted by The Times and The Sunday Times. This is only possible thanks to our subscribers. So please support our journalism by subscribing today. Search for thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. The people of Mosul aren't the only ones who want answers. As we near the end of this series, it's time we had some too. Throughout this investigation, we've addressed one of the enduring mysteries in this story. Did John Cantley turn? We know from Daniel Ryotterson, a Danish hostage, that John Cantley's last words to him were tell them to bomb the shit out of us. I don't want to be used as propaganda. Yet... A few weeks later, John Cantley was presenting his first ISIS film. So what changed? What happened in that period when there were no other hostages left? This is the key point of metamorphosis for John. And in that period lies the answer. In examining, does John afterwards somehow turn does he become a willing messenger of Islamic State? Mm. Does he somehow begin to believe Islamic State ideology? Well, to answer that, there's no better person, really, than Abu Hajar al-Maghribi, the Islamic State cameraman who worked with John in that key phase. When you were working with John, did you get the impression that John was... Thinking more like Islamic State, or that he was just a prisoner who was working for them to stay alive. What was his impression on this? When it comes to John, if they had given him the chance, he would have left because John was scared. If John Cantley had the opportunity to go back home, he was a hostage and he was about to be killed. But they gave him the opportunity to live with us and work in the media. But he was under pressure. 
if it had been possible to leave, he would have left. Uh, he was under pressure, he said. He Not was under pressure. He was under pressure. Yeah, pressure. His behavior suggested that. You can see if someone is staying there and is really comfortable, relaxed, or if someone is staying there but feels differently to us. Just to save his life. John had no choice. John was a man who was very, very alone, who struggled incredibly hard to stay alive. I remember speaking to Arthur, the hostage negotiator, who had got Daniel Rye out, the last Western hostage to be released by Islamic State. Arthur describes John's efforts to stay alive really is a tribute to him in a way that's unsurpassed by anybody else. I thoroughly believe that he had done whatever he could to actually play his card the best. I mean, imagine anyone who had sat that long a time in custody, seeing your people that you have lived, slept, shit with, die, and being released, and then having to pull yourself up and be the last guy. He has pulled some extraordinary survival skills. We can all speculate about Stockholm Syndrome, which I don't buy into. He has done what you would expect any hostage survivor to do until the very end, stay alive and hope that someone will, will get you out and you will do whatever you do and whatever it takes to stay alive. John clearly did everything he could to survive. Is there a sense that the British government let him down? You know, the state failed to rescue one of its own. Is his fury at British hostage policy in particular, is that justified? If you negotiate with a terrorist organisation and you are prepared to pay ransom for the return of your hostages... The advantages are you recover your nationals alive. They are strategic assets and you recover them alive. And you are free to pursue the terrorists after the payment and recovery of those hostages. That's the advantage in paying a ransom. But the Foreign Office would, of course, argue, as they have in a statement to us, that, you know, when you pay a ransom, it means paying terrorists. So you could be funding their activities and that might include attacks, and also you might encourage more kidnappings in the future. The British and American policy of non-negotiation, non-payment of ransom, is designed ultimately to deter. However, it doesn't deter. And during the Syrian hostage crisis, the flaws in that policy were really laid bare. and It didn't deter ISIS from taking British and Americans hostage, number one. Two, what it did allow Islamic State in killing those hostages, in putting the videos of their murders out online, and in using John in the way they did, Islamic states were afforded far greater power, far greater projection of their messaging, of their name mm. around the world than the value of any ransom could have allowed. In addition to that, it would have garnered them thousands of volunteers and it attracted and encouraged people to join Islamic State. Plus, on top of that, 
untold millions were paid by donors to Islamic State. They saw those videos, the death of Western hostages as the humiliation of Western powers, and they were keen to fund the organization that was doing that. So in this case, Britain's hostage policy neither deterred British citizens from being taken hostage, nor prevented empowerment of the terrorist organization. Indeed, Islamic State gained far more from the murder of British hostages and the showing of those videos online than it could have done had it just been paid ransom alone. In our search for answers about John Cantley, there are more difficult questions we have to confront. If, as now seems likely, John Cantley never made it out of the Battle of Mosul, then does that mean that rather than rescuing John, British weapons might have been responsible for his death? I am 100% sure that John was killed in Mosul in a drone strike, and there are a few that we can signpost towards, but it is not for me to discuss or disseminate that information. For John's old friend, Kevin Godlington, a former Special Forces soldier, this is a world that he knows well. I had friends who were involved in strikes. I knew that there was a lot more ordnance going in. I knew that they developed a wider target pack. And I suppose it was obvious and inevitable to me that if it was going to happen, it was around that time. And I... I'm pretty sure they knew that John was in the area. But I inevitably cannot prove that. So they sent a drone knowing he was there? Maybe. Wow. What would you want the government to say about John Cantley now? I don't expect the government to say we killed John. I don't expect them to say, unfortunately, John was part of collateral damage. All I expect is that there is a, a way for his family to grieve and move on. If that meant that the American and British government say, in the six months during our reoccupation of Mosul, we believe to a high balance of probability that John Cantley was killed in collateral damage as a result of military operations, then that allows closure for us to move on and for everybody to be able to do what's right and appropriate. So it's not about apportioning blame. I, as a soldier or somebody who's worked in this industry, may well have pushed the button myself. And I mean that sincerely. On the drone, knowing... Yes, if I, if, if I was acquitted with all the intelligence and knowledge, even if my friend was there, there's a chance I'd have pushed the button on him. It all depends on what the wider implications are and the gains and the need and all of the outcomes. So I, I won't and will not ever apportion blame or point fingers. What is clear is that in order for the family to move on, as you would in the death of a soldier or anybody... You have to have some closure. It's not okay that everyone wants to push this under the carpet and say, we pretend it didn't happen. He's silent now. ISIS is over. That's not okay. And, and that, for me, is why this story has to be told, because people are happy for us to just forget about John Cantley. 
And they'd rather we do because he's part of a horrible period in our history. There is some burden of responsibility we all bear for how ISIS came to be. And so whilst we've fixed it by getting rid of it, we now want to be able to say, well, John just went with it as well. And that him almost certainly being dead as a result of the cleaning up is also a thing we should forget. But if we don't tell the truth, then we're doing disservice to history and to brave people. In the final analysis, John may have lost his life to a coalition airstrike or drone strike or missile strike because he happened to be co-located in an Islamic State base like the one at the Al-Salam hospital or because there was a deliberate targeting of an Islamic State commander and it was known that John was likely in the vicinity of that commander. It's very unclear. All I can say with certainty is that the key to John Cantley's fate lies in Mosul, and it lies with the tree as well that has been planted in memory of his life near the place that he was last seen and has never been heard of since. The search for John Cantley always seems to lead back to Mosul, and that has some grim implications. Even recently, walking in the old city, as I did only six weeks ago, you could see human remains emerging from the rubble. There are still an unknown number of dead. We're talking about hundreds, maybe thousands of people buried just in the old city alone among the rubble there. When you walk past rubble like that, when you see bones, body parts that still haven't been claimed, still not really properly sorted. I mean, do you stop and wonder if if John Cantley's somewhere in there? Yeah, I don't think John made it out of Mosul. And let's be clear about this. I mean, for a time in the aftermath of the battle five years ago, there was talk that the Iraqi authorities were somehow going to conduct DNA tests on, you know, the bodies that they found in the rubble. They didn't do DNA tests. Some of them were buried in improvised graves. You know, thousands of people were just driven out into the desert and buried in mass graves. There's no DNA testing going on. I mean, the old city, literally, it had been reduced to just waves of rubble by the end of the fighting there. And, you know, walking through it now, five years on, the dead are still clearly visible there. It leaves so much still unsettled. With all the other hostages, their friends and family could either celebrate their return or at least mourn their loss. But John Cantley's fate remains unfixed. He's the restless ghost of the hostage crisis and for his friends, an eternal question mark. Mustafa Karali who had worked with John so often during John's early stages in Syria, who has a love for John, who was there the very moment when John was captured. Yeah. He still talks about a wish to see John again. But whenever he speaks about John, he speaks about him both in the present tense and in the past tense. 
And I've spoken to him, I've asked him directly, do you believe John is still alive? I don't think so, he's still alive until now. And in the same time, I hope he's fine and alive. I would like to see him again, even even his body. You know, to to just, you know, there is something in, inside my heart will never like like a fire, you know. Just to to know he's alive or not. And because I couldn't help him that time, I would like to know if he's really one day he will be alive and I will see him again or not. I don't know. And what about his friends back in Britain? I mean, he went off on a reporting trip and just never came back. What do they say about it now? John Canley's known publicly in the world, but these are people who knew John intimately. And certainly for someone like Ollie Tennant, who was not only a great friend of John's, but his mentor too. John's fate echoed on into Ollie's dreams years later. Spent a lot of time thinking about our friendship and so on. Um, and at one stage, I remember having a really, really vivid dream. I'm trying to think exactly when it was. Um, probably be four years in, maybe, so 2016, maybe, something like that. Um, but I didn't think of it as a dream at the time. I thought it was absolutely happening. Because I heard his voice. I was upstairs in my house. And I heard his voice downstairs. And I'm absolutely barreling down the stairs into the living room. And he was there in front of me. And I gave him a big, massive hug. And I remember he said, we're going to need a pint. Or probably a few. And... um. And then I realised it. And I remember, yeah, being quite upset about that because it was so, it felt really real. And then I thought, yeah, maybe this, maybe this something's happened at that point. Because I've never, you know, it's not something I'd dreamt before at all, ever. You know, I think about him, you know, quite a lot. But it was odd because I don't, don't remember dreams and I don't usually have dreams much. But um, it, it sounds a bit trite, but I did think that that might have coincided with something particular happening. For his old friend, Kevin Godlington, John Cantley's story now needs to be told. We have to have a proper system to say thank you to John and to memorialise him for his courage. He was a man who set out to tell a story, to capture a piece of history in the best way he could, was caught up in that process, had a horrific number of years that he had to endure and that we shouldn't forget because if he was a soldier we'd probably give him the George Cross and put a nice plaque on the side of his local school hall. Well let's put a plaque on his school hall. And how do you remember John? You know for people who never met him what would you want them to know about him? Firstly that John was my friend and somebody that I'd grown very fond of who 
had taken a path less traveled. He wanted to tell stories that required him to go into harm's way. And people who do that are few and far between. And if you're willing to go into harm's way to tell stories and to show the world what's going on, then somebody's got to have you back. But he didn't have a regiment behind him or an entire army. He just had him and his camera. And so I will remember him as being brave, heroic, kind, interesting, intelligent, smart, and we all owe it, me included, to make sure that story is told. And Anthony, this has been a really long-running investigation. You've been looking into John Cantley now for years, really. When we began this series, you know, you talked a bit about your memories of meeting him. You thought he was a bit of a prick. I mean, having looked into the man and his life and what might have happened to him, what do you think of him now? John was an incredibly complex man. Yes, he was reckless. Yes, he was brave. Yes, he was loud. Yes, he could be quiet. He could be extrovert. He could be introvert. He could be sensitive. He could be crass. He was a really interesting man. I tell you what, he played a game to survive like very, very few people could have done. And he so nearly made it. I became deeply moved by his story and by his struggle to survive. I think hostages are often misunderstood because they lose not just their physical freedom, but also the control of their narrative in some way, particularly mm. if they're to lose their life. You've been piecing that narrative together for years now. Why has this story become such an obsession, such a, a restless quest for answers? You know, stories of survival and of the myths of survival are an essential part of our psyche. Man loves stories of survival. Hmm. And John's story, on the one hand, is an incredible story of survival. After all, John managed, against all odds, to literally be the last man standing. He is the longest known surviving hostage in the hands of a death cult. He played the most incredible game to stay alive. But in order to stay alive, John has to have a metamorphosis. He has got to change into someone who is useful to Islamic State. He has got to hold on to his own identity and cloak it with the identity of a man who is angry at having been left behind and wrap that somehow into messaging for Islamic State that will allow him to keep alive. But in doing that, he then initiates a whole lot of misunderstanding back in his own country. Many people think, oh, actually, success in staying alive means that he has turned. John is so alone, he's misunderstood by his own people, misunderstood by the people living in the caliphate. He has only himself in the endeavour to stay alive. No one else seems to be helping him. In the final analysis, John most likely lost his life in Mosul to a weapon system belonging to the coalition. And even in death, when an olive is planted in the Al-Nuri Mosque, in his memory, 
He is allowed no peace because he's, his life is still so contentious. And I hope that if nothing more, somehow telling John's story will have palliated some of that contention and allow him a peace he has not yet had. This was the final episode of this series, for now. But the investigation is far from over. Since episode one came out, I've been contacted by a variety of people from a variety of sides during that conflict, including jihadists as well. People from Syria, people from Iraq, and also people in America with information about John. So I'm not quite sure yet whether or not I finished investigating John's fate. Last Man Standing is a Stories of Our Times production for The Times and The Sunday Times. This series is based on an investigation and interviews conducted by Anthony Lloyd, war correspondent at The Times. It's co-presented and executive produced by me, Manveen Rana. The lead producer is Poppy Damon. The producer is Matthew Wareham. Story editing is by Joe Sykes at Samizdat Audio. Sound design and original music is by Tom Birchall. And the executive producer of Stories of Our Times is Kate Ford. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.